0: Hey, it's Pastor Mike. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and make it a regular part of your day, can I ask for your regular support? We really can't make any of our sermon series or devotions without the continual support of friends like you. Time of Grace, in case you didn't know, is 100% donor funded, meaning it is your gifts that make it possible for us to use television and print and digital media to share the good news of God's amazing grace. Just click on the link in the episode notes and thank you for all of your prayers and all of your support. God bless. There seems to be a problem with what the Bible teaches about angels. And some of you might know what I'm talking about, but I'll tell you an angel story to illustrate what the problem seems to be. When I was in high school, shortly after I had gotten my driver's license, I was driving my little sister around town in the area where we lived and, or in this, uh, a big old 1977 Dodge Sportsman van, which was a full-size van, fully carpeted interior, uh, steering wheel about you know about like this this wide, with a tiny little horn right in the middle that you really had to, you really had to lean into in order to get it to make any noise. Uh, it was in pretty rough shape already by the time I got my license, but that's what we had and that's what we drove. And my sister and I are having a great time driving around the city, doing some shopping, enjoying each other's company. And um, when suddenly going about 50 miles an hour down a down a road my horn honks which is really strange because I I vividly remember both hands being on the wheel but but my horn honked and why that was significant is because I wasn't looking at the road at the time I was looking over at my sister who was in the passenger seat and As I was looking at her, the horn honked, which caused me to turn my head forward. And when I turned my head forward, I noticed that we were very quickly at 50 miles an hour approaching a red light where traffic was already stopped. And so I slammed on the brakes when I saw the traffic and we skid all the way up to the car in front of us and we stopped when we were about that far from its bumper. (laughs) Phew. If uh, if my horn hadn't honked, then we would have gone 50 miles an hour into the back bumper of the car in front of me because I would not have turned my head, I would not have seen the red light, and I would, have not have seen my, would not have seen that vehicle there. And because in a 1977 Dodge Sportsman van, the vehicles then didn't yet have these shoulder straps that come down, but just the lap belts that go around the lap, and no airbags, that could have been really, really damaging. And so with both hands on the wheel, and my sister over there, who honked the horn? I think an angel honked the horn. (laughs) I think an angel honked the horn that day, so I would look ahead and I would see and I would apply the brakes and we would both be safe. That's the only explanation I can come up with. I didn't see an angel, but that's what I think happened. And stories like that, and you may have heard stories like that from others, or you may have some stories like that on your own, they seem to reinforce what the Bible teaches about angels. In Psalm 91, it says that God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. In the book of Hebrews, it says, Aren't all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who are being saved? So, angels are assigned to serve us. Angels are assigned to be concerned about us and to guard us in all of our ways, which is incredibly great news, until something else happens. About that same period in my life, a classmate of mine in high school was in a major car accident. She lived, but she was going to have to live with the damage, the bodily damage for the rest of her life. It had a very difficult impact on her and her ability to care for herself. And so you look at the one situation and you say, well, if an angel honked the horn there and stopped damage from happening, why didn't an angel step in and stop that from happening? And that seems to be the problem, that there seems to be an inconsistency. It's like, why here and not there? Why this and not that? The Bible gives us an explanation that at least begins to settle our hearts a bit when we think about how we're supposed to use the Bible's teaching about angels. In Matthew chapter four, it's one of the places in the Bible where it teaches about Jesus going toe-to-toe with the devil. After Jesus was baptized, he went out into the wilderness and the devil himself tempted Jesus himself for 40 days. And one of the temptations, in one of the temptations, the devil quotes the Bible. He actually quotes that Bible passage on Psalm 91 that I quoted earlier. So listen to this, it says, Then the devil devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But then Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And with that, Jesus was guiding us as to the proper use of the Bible's teaching on angels that it's not a litmus test a test to see how much God is paying attention to us, a test to see whether or not God loves us, a test to see whether or not angels are real. If that's what we're using the doctrine of angels for, then we're using it in in the incorrect way. We can't use the teaching about angels as a test to see if God will or does or can do or be something. Jesus in responding to the devil was reminding us that Christians will always have to live by faith. we Will always have to live by faith. And faith in who? Faith in the one who is willing to go toe-to-toe with Satan. Just for you. Faith in his word. Faith in his love. Faith in his guidance. Faith in his determination to be there for you no matter what it would cost him. And in this series, we're going to be looking at some examples of how God, throughout history, has used angels to help so many others see the beauty and the power of the God who has always focused on being there for you. You might be wondering, if angels are real, then why does anyone I love ever have to die? I told you previously about a friend of mine who was in a car accident. And they lived and they continued to live with, uh, with the ripple effects of that of that accident for their life. But around the same time in my life, while I was in high school, a friend of mine had an older brother whose life was full of promise, gifted, mature, just a wonderful young man who was involved in a, a rollover accident. and. And he didn't live, he died. And so someone might ask, well, if if angels are real, then why would that ever happen? It's a good question. I won't be able to answer every, every question related to it definitively, but I, I can point you to a place in the Bible where we're told about the activity of an angel that maybe gives us a little bit of insight into what was going on or what God might be doing. It was involving the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, ended up being one of the lead disciples as the church went out into the world. But at one point in his ministry, Peter was arrested and he was thrown into prison and he was chained between guards. And one night as he was chained between the guards, an angel showed up in his jail cell. And he said, come on, Peter, let's go. And so Peter said, well, okay. And um, The chains fell off and the guards didn't wake up and the gates in front of him opened up and there he went. And then the next gate, the outer gate in front of him opened up. And then, and then Peter got out to the street and the angel suddenly disappeared. And Peter realized, wow, this is real. He thought it had been a dream. (laughs) But, but it was real. An angel led him out of prison. And then he knew that a number of other Christians were meeting in somebody's home, praying for his release. And so he went to the house and he knocked on the door and they sent, a, they sent one of the servant girls to the door to see who it was because they were afraid that the authorities who put Peter into prison were also going to come for them. And so they send the servant girl, which seems to be a not very kind thing to do to the servant girl. But anyway, she goes and she opens up, you know, she can, a way so, so that she can see through the door and see who it is. And she sees that it's Peter and she's so excited that she leaves Peter at the door, goes in and tells everyone, well, it's Peter. Peter's alive. And they say, no, he's not. <laughs> They're like, Peter's in prison at the very, very least. And she says, no, it's really, it's really, really Peter. And so they all go and they check it out. And sure enough, Peter has escaped from prison. He's alive. He tells them the story about the angel. And it's just, uh, it's incredibly, it's incredibly fascinating. An angel helped him escape from prison. Do you know what happened just before he was in prison? A disciple named James was also arrested. And he was killed. died. And so the person who arrested James, they saw how excited his supporters got when he arrested and killed one of the disciples that he decided to arrest another one. And so he arrested Peter. And he threw him in prison. And he had every intention of doing the same type of thing to Peter, to set an example of what happens to anybody who preaches about Jesus or anybody who defies a government's commands to not talk about Jesus anymore an angel let Peter go and live but James died and Peter knew that when he looked his friends in the eyes and he said this After he was at their house, he said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And that last phrase is really key because you have to ask yourself what were their enemies hoping would happen? They were hoping that the God that they believed in would not be able to rescue Peter. They were hoping that the God that they confess would be powerless to be there for his disciples. An angel showed Peter and Herod, the guy who arrested him, and all of their enemies that that was not the case. And if you wonder, well, what happened with the other disciple then? How does that show that the enemies won't win in the end? Well, then you go to another place in the Bible where angels showed up. It was the day after somebody else had died, or actually on the third day, after somebody else had died. On a Friday, Jesus himself, the Son of God, died. The angels didn't stop that from happening either. But then on the third day, on a Sunday morning, as Peter and some of the other disciples went to the place where Jesus was buried, they didn't find Jesus. Instead, they found some angels who looked at them and said, the dead guy you're looking for, he's risen. He's more powerful even than death. The angels don't always stop death from happening. And it hurts every time we go through it. Every time. But neither could the enemies of the church, neither could God's enemies stop Jesus from showing that he was more powerful even than death. And that's why God sends the angels to point us to him. So that we can find our comfort, so that we can find our life, so that we can find our hope in life and even in death. You might be wondering, if angels are real, then why do you ever feel alone? One of the more famous angel movies, or angel-related movies, is a, it's a classic that goes back many decades, called It's a Wonderful Life. It's a story about a man named George Bailey and his guardian angel named Clarence. and. Um, <laughs> There's so much wrong with the movie related to angels. It, it feeds a lot of misconceptions about, um, about angels. Like, Clarence is supposed to be a person who was once a human on earth and and then he died and he's working to get his wings so that he can become an angel. Well, that, that doesn't happen. Um, people don't become angels. In fact, one of the passages that uh, I've referenced already in the series from the book of Hebrews says that that would actually be a downgrade for humans where it says that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit eternal life. And so if we were to become an angel, we would take a step down to the level of those who are there to serve the human race. And so it's okay that we and our loved ones don't become angels, which means it's also okay to believe that uh, it's incorrect to say every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, which is what comes up in the movie. Anyway, so Clarence in this movie. He's uh, he's talking with the big fella, with uh, with with God or the chief angel or it's with the chief angel, and he's uh, describing his new assignment, which is to go and help George Bailey. And Clarence asks, "Well, what's wrong with George? You know, is he is he hurt? Is he is he sick? Is you know, it's, um has he been in an accident? You know, different different things like that. And and the person who's talking to Clarence, who's giving him the assignment, says, "No, worse. He's discouraged." He's discouraged. And in the movie, obviously, an angel didn't stop that from happening. But in real life, well, the same happens in real life. That angels don't often stop us from feeling discouraged or alone or distressed. And and even Jesus acknowledges as much. Just listen to the section in Matthew, chapter 18, where Jesus is talking and he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So Jesus affirms a couple of things there. One, that there are angels watching over even the, uh, even the littlest ones among us. Um, but he also gives some neat insight into it. That as the angels look at the ones that they, are, that they are, in a sense, assigned to watch by God, they can always see the face of our Father in heaven. And I want you to imagine what your face looks like whenever you see a new baby for the first time, maybe it's your own child, maybe it's somebody else's, but when you see a new baby for the first time, your face just lights up. It's like, ah. And that's what Jesus is saying what happens with our Father in heaven, his face. Whenever he thinks of his children, it just lights up with delight. And you know, if you have ever held in your arms a fragile little child, you know that there's Well, you will do anything in your power to protect that. And that will often show up in your face, in your face of delight, in your face of determination to be there. And, you know, in in everything that other people can see, they can see that this child means something to you. And that's what the angels see as they are watching over and guarding all the little ones that they are assigned to. They see the face of our Father in heaven and, and they see how much this child means to God. And they take that knowledge and they do something good with it. They protect that child. So some great things that Jesus is teaching us there about the activity of angels in the lives of even, of even the littlest ones. However, Jesus acknowledges in that section that even Jesus himself and certainly, you know, all of the angels, didn't stop these little ones from feeling despised. I mean, why else would Jesus have to tell someone not to despise these little ones if Someone wasn't guilty of despising them. Making them feel rejected. Or alone. Or discouraged in some kind of way. So the angels don't stop that from happening. But then Jesus goes on to make a promise about something that will happen. He says, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for that one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. The angels don't stop us always from being overlooked, from feeling alone, from feeling discouraged. But God uses his angels to make sure that even the little ones will not perish. And we can't always see how he's doing that. That's what Jesus is teaching them. But other places in Scripture teach us the same thing. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter thirteen, it says, "says Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it." And so, in other words, some people that you just r- brush across on the on the sidewalk some days, they might be angels, and you don't even know it. You're surrounded by more protection and by more servants sent from God to keep an eye on you than you're ever aware of. And there's a place in the Old Testament that gives us a cool picture of how this happened. In 2 Kings, chapter 6, um, a young man named Gehazi, kind of a fun name. uh, Gehazi was with his mentor named Elisha. And there were people coming after them. And they had fled to a place where they thought that they were safe. But then Gehazi opened up the door in the morning and surrounding them were armies of their enemies. And he said to Elisha, What are we going to do? We're surrounded by so many. And Elisha looked at him and he said, Don't be afraid, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then it says, Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, army angels surrounding their enemies. Those who were with them were more than those who were against them. And even if that weren't the case, if, the, if our enemies weren't outnumbered by angels that we can't always see, we would, of course, have still the biblical truth that God is with you, too. God himself is with you, too. That's the promise that he made, that's the promise that he kept at the cross of Jesus. That God would do whatever it takes, that he would suffer whatever was necessary to always be there for you. And that God who did that is also the God who showed on the third day that he was more powerful than death itself, more powerful than Satan himself, more powerful than any sin, even our own. When Jesus talked about the little ones, it's easy for us immediately to imagine little children, people who are little in their physical life, and it's certainly possible that he was talking about them, but, but many believe that it wasn't little children he was talking about, those who are little in their body size. But instead, when he was talking about little ones, he was talking about those who are little in their faith. In other words, individuals who sometimes have a hard time believing that God's love for them is real. That angels are really doing anything for them. Or that God would even even care to remember them and be there for them in the best possible ways. And if that's you, if you ever feel little in your faith, just take Jesus' words to heart that God is not willing that any of his little ones will ever perish and be separated from him. You might be wondering, if angels are real, And if the God who sends them is not willing that any of his little ones should perish, then why do you still fall into temptation? There's a famous picture of an angel watching over two children on a rickety bridge. I've seen it many, many times. I think it goes all the way back to the early 1900s. It shows these two little children walking in the middle of a storm and they're going across a rickety bridge that's over a stream. And by themselves, they would be in a ton of danger. But the painting also shows something that, apparently, the children can't see, which is a large guardian angel watching over them so that they don't fall off the edge. Which is very comforting when it comes to our physical life sometimes, but, but what about your spiritual life? If angels are real and if God isn't willing that any of us should perish, then why does he allow us to fall into temptation and also suffer the consequences of it? There's a story in the Bible that helps us address that question. It's about a man named Balaam. It's in the the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 22. And so a man named Balaam got up to make a journey one day and he started riding on his donkey. And apparently God wasn't very happy with Balaam. But as he was going along on the donkey, uh, an angel appeared in front of the donkey that the donkey could see but that Balaam was not allowed to see. And when the angel, or when the donkey saw the angel in front of him, it started going into a different direction, started going off into a field, which of course got Balaam, who was riding the donkey, very angry. And he started, he started getting angry at the donkey and started beating the donkey very, very badly until it went back on the path. But the angel didn't go away. The angel stayed in front of the donkey and at one point, the donkey was going through Uh, a very narrow pass with walls on the right and the left, and the angel was right there in front of it, not wanting the donkey to pass through. And so the donkey tried to squeeze his way around the angel. And as he's squeezing his way around the angel, he is pressing Balaam's foot up against the, uh, the wall, up against him, crushing his foot. And so Balaam got really, really angry again, not seeing the angel, not knowing what was happening, and he started beating the donkey again. You know, you bad, you know, you bad animal. You're not supposed to be doing this. And he started beating him really badly. So then the donkey gets up and they start riding again. And a third time, they they come to a place where the angel was in front of the donkey again and the donkey didn't have the ability to go to the right or the left. And so the donkey just decided to sit down with Balaam on top of him. And Balaam was irate by this time. And so he started beating him again, beating him again. And at this point, the angel did something somewhat remarkable. It spoke through the donkey. (laughs) <laughs> so the donkey opened its mouth and said to Balaam, what are you doing? <laughs> Which I would think would surprise would surprise him, but he apparently started having a conversation with his donkey, but the donkey says, you know, what, what are you doing? Am I not the donkey who's been here for so many years and I've always been good and always been faithful? Why are you beating me? Don't you trust that I know what, I, that I know what I'm doing? And then at that point, it says, the Bible opened up Balaam's eyes, or God opened up Balaam's eyes so that he also was able to see the angel. And at that point, Balaam discovered the truth. That we can't always see or perceive how God's angels are working. That's certainly the truth for us. We can't always see or perceive how God's angels are working. And God wanted him to see that. But he also wanted him to see something else. He wanted him to see himself. After Balaam saw the angel and realized what he had done, do you know what he said? I've sinned. I've sinned. And then he said to God, God, if you want nothing more to do with me, just say the word and, and I'll walk away. And the angel didn't stop that from happening, from helping Balaam see his mistakes. From Balaam's, the angel didn't stop his anger from getting the best of him. Just as angels often don't stop us from letting our pet sins and any other sins sometimes get the best of us. In fact, in that case, the angel actually provoked it so that Balaam could see just how much control his anger had over him, even when it came to a donkey. God wanted Balaam to see that angels are working in ways that we can't always see or perceive, but he also wanted him to see something else that was very important besides himself. He wanted him to see the God who always treats us far better than we deserve. After Balaam said, I've sinned and I wouldn't blame you if you want nothing to do with me, God picked him up and he said, no, I want you to keep going. And if you read through the rest of that section in the book of Numbers, you'll see that Balaam ended up being an incredible witness for the God who always treats us far better than we deserve and whose angel helped Balaam see that. And whose angels, in whatever ways that we won't always be able to perceive, want you to see it too. And there's one place that very regularly God will point us over and over again and again. Especially in those moments when it's obvious to us that my anger, my greed, my lust, or any other sin, when it gets the best of me far too easily, God wants us to see the day when God himself is the one who was crushed. The day when God himself is the one who was beaten, so that you could walk through the rest of your life knowing that you're forgiven. You're forgiven, whatever it is. God knows who we are. He knows how prone to sin our hearts will always be. He wants us to see that that we stop putting so much trust in ourselves and find our soul's greatest rest in the one who bled and died and rose for you and me. There are so many questions related to angels, but in general, you can summarize so many of them by asking, if angels are real, then why does life hurt so much? Why did the miscarriage happen? Why did the cancer come? Why is it still here? Why was that pain inflicted? Why did God allow that damage to be done? If angels are real, then why does life hurt so much? There's a place in the Bible I'd like you to go to with me that helps us answer that question. It's in Luke, chapter 22. It's the, the night before Jesus dies. And he's in a garden, a garden called Gethsemane, and it says this. It says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I want you to take note of the order of events there. So Jesus was already in anguish, knowing what was going to happen. He knew the crucifixion was coming the next day. He knew his disciple, Judas, was going to betray him that night. He knew that his disciple, Peter, was going to deny him multiple times. He he knew that was coming and he asked that it be taken away for the same reason that any of us would. None of us like to go through any amount of pain. So he's already in anguish. And then, after he prays, it says, An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And then, Jesus was in more anguish. Jesus was in more anguish. So much so that his body started physically reacting to the anxiety and started sweating like, his sweatless was like drops of blood. And so the angels did not stop the anguish from happening. Or another way to say it, Life doesn't hurt because there aren't angels. It hurts because this is a world that we need to be saved from. That's why life hurts. Because this is a world that we need to be saved from. And even Jesus knows that. And there in the garden, and the next day on the cross, we see the beautiful truth that God doesn't ignore our hurt. He comes to it and he embraces it. And he goes through it himself to show us that he will always use everything he has access to to save you from this world that hurts. He will use his own blood, he will use his own life, and he will use his angels too.